Well, if you would open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6, please. Galatians chapter 6. We are going to read, beginning in verse 7, we are going to read through verse 10, and I would ask you to follow along with me as I read, for these are the very words of God. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will reap from the Spirit eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Well, we live in what many people call a post-Christian society, although I read actually just this morning it's probably better to say that we live in an apostate Christian society. We live in a society that was once largely influenced by the Christian faith where many people within the culture were largely Christians and now that is no longer the case. It is no longer the case really even in profession as um, although many polls will show that the majority of people in this country profess to be Christians, uh, that number has been shrinking gradually every year. But what's even more disturbing is when you read other studies that probe a little bit more into what these actual professing Christians believe, they're really not Christians at all. The amount of people in this country that are truly Christians and that are shaped by a Christian worldview is shockingly small. And so our country really should not be considered a Christian country. If what you mean by that it is we are largely a country made up of mostly Christians influenced and guided by a Christian worldview, that is just simply not the case. But one thing that I found interesting, however, is that although we are not a particularly Christian company, company, country, we are, however, still a very spiritual country. I'll never forget when it felt like the, this movement known as the New Atheism was on the rise. When I was in high school, it was, just, it was popular to be an atheist, and there were popular atheists producing books and making tons of money off these books, men like Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and Daniel Dennett. And, but what you'll find is that the vast majority of, the, of people in this country, if they're not particularly Christian, are oftentimes not these kind of rabid, anti-theistic atheists. There's a good amount of those, don't get me wrong. But in my experience, most people who aren't Christians are still religious. But they don't like that term, so they prefer the term spiritual. Because they openly reject any kind of institutionalized religion. So they don't want to be thought of as a religious person. They don't prescribe to some formal world religion. But they simply cannot live their day with this atheistic assumption that I got here by accident, my life doesn't matter, there's no power looking over me, you cease to exist when you die. That's just too nihilistic for them. And so they adopt a very spiritualized worldview and they'll still operate as if there's some kind of theistic presence in the world and that good is rewarded and evil is punished and what those terms mean, we don't really know. In one of the ways that I've noticed this, that I've seen this kind of latent spirituality, 
is how many people in this country believe in kind of a stolen, borrowed, Americanized version of karma? Karma is a really popular belief in American culture. Karma, which is stolen from Eastern religion, and it's not practiced perfectly the way it is in the East because it's removed from that worldview. But there is this general idea in our society that the universe will reward you for being good. And that bad things will come to you if you're bad. You know you be someone believes in a kind of Americanized karma if they've ever used the phrase, what goes around comes around. Right? If you do good, good will happen to you. If you do bad, then bad will happen to you. So it's this very pragmatic, spiritual way of living life. Be good so that good things will come your way because what goes around comes around. And that's a form of karma, right? The Eastern religions teach in karma, and karma is basically the thought that if you do bad things, then you're going to, in another life, reap the fruit of that, so to speak. You're going to have a really bad life. Bad things are going to happen to you. And if you do good things, then you'll be rewarded, and good things are going to happen to you. Well, karma, in all of its many forms, and we'll talk a little bit more about that at the end of the sermon, is a really wicked and untrue pagan doctrine but like most false teachings, there is a kernel of truth to it. There is something there worth noting. And really what that kernel of truth ends up being is this Christian metaphor that we see in Scripture of the metaphor or the analogy, if you will, of the sowing and reaping principle. And that is what Paul aims to teach us in this text. He teaches us by way of a metaphor this very simple phrase, what you sow, you will reap. What you put into the ground is what's going to come out of the ground. He begins by teaching us this principle of sowing and reaping. So let's talk about this concept of sowing and reaping. What does it mean particularly here in this text? Well, we need to tr track the train of thought. Paul has sort of taken a break in, at the end of Galatians 5 and the beginning of Galatians 6. Paul has kind of taken a break from his polemic against the Judaizers. He's been really going after the Judaizers hard through most of this letter, and he's going to return to that next week. But he's sort of taken a break. He's not really talking about them anymore. And he's really focused on the Christians in the churches of Galatia. And he talked to them a few weeks ago about the fruit of the Spirit, about how we need to be led by the Spirit, not by the law, and how the Spirit will produce these good works within us. And then last week we looked at, well, what does that look like in the local church? What does it look like for Christians to treat each other well? What is a healthy, spiritual church supposed to look like? And then Paul sort of ta caps off, if you will, this argument by, in a very sober-minded reflection, reminding us, that while we are called to good works, while we are called to be led by the Spirit, we need to remember that we will one day stand before God. If you think that's a trivial thing, if you think it's a light thing, if that's, if, if that's something you think you can just blow off, Paul reminds us, we will stand before God. He begins by telling us in verse 7, it sort of, jaw, it sort of jars you, right? It, it sort of hits you right in the mouth, metaphorically speaking. Do not be deceived. Don't kid yourselves. Don't fool yourselves. Do not for one moment trick yourself into thinking what? That God can be mocked. God will not be mocked. Now what is it that Paul is saying would hypothetically mock God? 
Well, he says, for whatever one sows, that he also will reap. So here's what Paul is saying with this idea of not mocking God. Paul is essentially saying this. You can ignore all of these principles that Paul just raised, right? We looked last week about being kind to our neighbor, being generous and loving to our pastors, treating each other in the church well. And it's very easy to come up with excuses for why we don't do those things, right? I, I, I just financially look at my situation. I can't share all good things with my pastor. I just, I, I financially, I'm not in a place to do that. I can't help the church in the spread of the gospel. I'm, I'm not in a place. You see, we've got this mortgage and we, you know, we're struggling coronavirus. You know, we've got all this. I just, I don't, we don't have it right now. Whatever excuse we might have for why we are not devoted to the body, treating the body well, helping the body, loving the body, being led by the spirit, we can trick one another. Well, here's why I didn't. Here's why I can. And here's why they don't deserve it. And here's, I don't really think I should be spending time with them. We can come with all these excuses and, and they might even fool ourselves and they might convince each other. Okay, that's a valid reason. But it would be insulting to God to think that on judgment day, he's going to be tricked by our excuses. Oh, I didn't, I didn't realize your circumstances were like that. My bad. Is that how God is going to respond to us on judgment day? Oh, I didn't think of it that way. Shoot, I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't realize life was so difficult for you. You see, if you have that kind of a view of God, you are essentially mocking God. Because we need to remember we serve the omniscient, omnipresent God who knows everything we do, including our hearts and our motives and our thoughts. So don't be deceived. Our excuses for rejecting what Paul has given us, they might fly in the day-to-day -day area. They might trick other people, but we won't trick God. God will not be mocked. And so Paul essentially says, here's what it looks like. How does God prove that he will not be mocked? Well, he proves this by what? Just sentencing. Whatever one sows, that he also will reap. You will not trick God. No one will trick God on judgment day. He is going to hand out fair, just, and good retribution and reward. His justice will be served. And to suggest it won't is to ultimately put God up for mockery and to deceive ourselves. But what is this? Where am I getting this concept of justice and vindication from? Well, Paul breaks into an agricultural metaphor. He, he describes the Christian life in Judgment Day in terms of a farming analogy. And this is not uncommon. Uh, the Jewish people, ever since their days in Egypt, have always been an agricultural community, a largely agricultural community. And that's why if you read through the Gospels, you will find Jesus very often utilizing agricultural metaphors to make his point. Right? The farmer and the seed, Jesus talks about sowing and reaping, the, fruit that bear, the tree that bears no fruit, all that stuff. Jesus loves to point us to nature and agriculture for his metaphors. And so Paul does the same thing. And Paul tells us something that if we're just looking at the natural world, if we're just looking at the science of things, is pretty obvious, isn't it? Right? If you plant apple seeds, don't be disappointed that when harvest comes around, you don't have any oranges to pick. Right? If what you put in the ground is going to come up. You can't be shocked if you barely put any seed in the ground, barely put any work into this thing, but then you're mad and upset and shocked that you don't have this huge, plentiful harvest. 
right? And, and this makes sense to us, agriculturally speaking. It's like, duh. But Paul says, this needs to make sense to you on a spiritual level as well. Why is it so obvious in nature, but it's not so obvious in our spiritual life? You see, we can't expect to just blow off God, reject his word, reject his apostles, reject his commandments, and then put none of the good seed, none of our sowing for spiritual life into the ground. And then all of a sudden on judgment day show up and say, God, what's the deal? Where's my harvest? Where's my eternal reward? Well, you didn't plant anything. Well, you did plant something. But what you planted was only worthy of what? Destruction. That's why he says in verse 8, For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap from the flesh corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will reap from the Spirit eternal life. So Paul is reminding him, there, there is no eternal life for the people who just reject what I have offered you. You can go down the road of the Judaizers, you can reject this gospel, you can reject the Christian faith, and you can go and uh, follow the flesh and plant seeds of the flesh, but do not expect Judgment Day to go well for you if that's all you're putting in the ground. There will be no harvest for you. The harvest, the eternal life, will only be reaped by whom? Those who, by their faith, have been justified and received the Spirit and now are being led and walking by the Spirit. Those who are sowing to the Spirit will, from the Spirit, by the power of the Spirit, the text says, it is the Spirit who will reap for us eternal life. And this all leads naturally to his conclusion. Notice what he says in verse 9. He breaks from the metaphor, so there's the metaphor. You reject Christ, you reject Paul's gospel, you reject the Spirit, you pursue the law... You pursue your flesh, expect corruption, expect destruction. But if you're led by the Spirit, if you're justified by faith, filled with the Spirit, and you sow to the Spirit, and you plant those things in the ground, expect a reward, expect a harvest. So then he leads conclusion, right? that, so what's the application of that? Well, it's simple. Sow to the Spirit. Be led by the Spirit. Do good works, as he says in verse 9. Let us not grow weary... Of doing good, for in due season we will reap. That's his conclusion. Do good and reap your reward. But notice he tells us not to grow weary of doing good. What does that imply? That doing good is tiresome. He wouldn't have to say that if this was simple. And this is where the farming analogy still connects. Farming is not an easy job. I mean, especially back then, they didn't have GPS tractors that drive themselves. Farming was difficult work. It was, it was easy to grow weary of farming. It's easy to grow weary of the day in and day out, sun up to sundown, constant labor of planting and watering and pruning and all that goes into farming. This is tiresome work, but what does every farmer know? It's going to be worth it. If we quit now then we're in big trouble come harvest. So yes, it's hard. Yes, it's not easy, but we must keep up. We must keep working. Because we have a, a harvest we're expecting. And so Paul says, in the same way, doing good works is laborious. It's labor. It's difficult. Everyone in this room knows the easiest lifestyle to live is a selfish, self-absorbed lifestyle. You want to make your life easy? 
Just think only of yourself. Don't care about God. Don't care about people. Don't care about neighbor. Just do whatever you can to get yours. Make your life more comfortable. Don't ever do anything you don't want to do. Just get yours. Get your money. Get your food. Provide for yourself. And you'll find life can be really easy. Really full of pleasure. I don't ever do what I don't want to do. And I only do that which I do want to do. Easy life. But there's no harvest there. There's no reward there. So Paul says, why don't you rather, like a farmer, sacrifice this life now, crucify your flesh, die to yourself, live a good life, which is the difficult life, the narrow road, the hard road, follow that path, and then it'll all be worth it one day. Living, planting good seed is labor. It's hard work. We live in a fallen world. And one of the effects of that fallen world is unfortunately goodness, charity. It's not always easy. People like you, people like me, make it very hard to treat each other well sometimes. People can be stubborn. People can be ungrateful. People can be selfish. People can be hurtful. And on top of that, we, just, we have our own circumstances we're dealing with. I'm trying to pay my bills. I'm trying to take care of my kids. Why am I supposed to be focused on helping everybody else? Where's my help? Life is hard. We have enough worries and concerns and pains of our own to really think or care a whole lot about other people. And Paul says, I know that. I know it's hard. I know it's hard to die to yourself, to crucify your passions, to crucify your flesh, to be led by the Spirit and to obey the law of God. But one day that won't be hard. One day, all of the troubles of this life, all of the worries of this life, all of the pain, all the, that's, this is a very temporary thing. We just sang that song, we are but a vapor. Compared to eternity, our lives here are not that long. It's a very short season of planting and an eternally long season of reaping harvest. So when we keep that perspective that helps us remember, I don't need to grow weary in this short blink of an eye lifestyle that I have. Because one day I'm going to die. And that day is coming sooner than I probably think. Our lives are but a vapor in the wind, the blink of an eye, and then we will spend eternity either reaping destruction or reaping reward. So Paul says, don't grow weary. I know it's hard. But keep planting, keep farming, keep working. And he tells us that we must do this, he says, going back to, forgive me, verse 9. We will reap if we do not give up. As Jesus says, it is the one who perseveres to the end who will be saved. This is another reason for us, by the way. I've mentioned this multiple times throughout this sermon series. But I'm going to say it again. This is another reason for us to reject what is known as easy believism. Which is this idea that someone can just maybe walk an aisle, say a prayer, and then they're, they're saved. And no matter what they do with their life, no matter what they believe after that, no matter where they might fall into, no matter what lifestyle they fall into, well, they said a prayer one day. Well, what does Paul say here? Can you give up? Can you give up the Christian life and still reap a harvest? No. You see, we, we need to understand that we are saved by faith and faith alone. We are justified by faith and faith alone. 
But Jesus says it is only the faith that is persevered by God up until the end that is saved. You must die in a state of belief for that faith to justify you. You cannot abandon Christ. You cannot turn from the gospel. You cannot walk away from the gospel that you claimed you were believing and expect to reap a reward one day. Well, because at one point in your life you said, a, you said this magical prayer. No, you must persevere in the faith. You must die in that state if you are to reap eternal life. It is important for us to remember that we are called to persevere to the end. And it is this perseverance which we believe is ultimately accomplished by the grace of the Holy Spirit alone. It is He who ultimately works out our perseverance that reminds us of all these other great truths in Scripture. For example, it's another reminder of our need for church discipline. Again, I know I keep coming back to this, but it's been relevant to almost every text we've preached. Is it a harsh, mean, nasty thing when a person who's maybe been in our church and been professing faith in Christ falls into a sinful lifestyle, refuses to repent, and we expel them from membership? Is that, is that a really harsh thing? Well, no. Because what does Paul say? We must continue until the end. You don't get to just be a permanent lifetime member of the church because at one time we thought you were believing. You no longer are now, but you were, so let's keep you in. No, you must persevere. You cannot give up. Church discipline is our way of recognizing, I don't think this person's faith was genuine to begin with, and I don't think this person is really a Christian. I have no reason to think this person is a Christian. And we have good evidence from Scripture to say that that is not a mean, nasty, cruel treatment. That is exactly what the local church of God is supposed to do. This reminds us of the wickedness of the prosperity gospel, which is running rampant all across the world, even in our own country. The prosperity gospel, which takes this seed-sowing metaphor and turns it into one thing and one thing only, money. And so you'll hear prosperity teachers all across the land saying, sow a seed of $100 and you will reap $1,000 in a month from now. Paul mentions this here. He also mentions it in 1 Corinthians 9 where he is talking about giving to help churches in need. And they take this out of context and they manipulate it. And they make us think that the only reward we should be focused on is an earthly, present, this life, monetary gift. But that's not what Paul says. Paul doesn't say, sow money and you will reap money. He says, sow good works and you will reap eternal life. Paul is focused on our eternal reward, not our earthly monetary rewards. Paul knows there is something so much better than money and silver and gold which rusts, which fades away, which will not go into the grave with us. Having an eternal mindset, having a heavenly perspective helps us to see the shallow silliness of the modern faith and word healers and prosperity preachers who go around and essentially turn Jesus into a vending machine who promises you money and health in this life. But Paul's not focused on this life. This is life is hard. This life is difficult. This life is filled with present troubles and distresses. And Paul says, in the midst of that, don't grow weary of doing good because you will reap an eternal harvest. He's not interested in you accumulating a big sum of money before you die. That's not what the sowing and reaping principle is about. 
This really exposes the wickedness of that prosperity gospel. And so he sort of doubles down on his conclusion, if you you will. He reminds us to persevere in doing good. Don't grow weary, for you will reap as long as you don't give up. And then he says, he concludes in verse 10, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are the household of faith. Notice he mentions this idea of as we have opportunity, or your translation might say as we have ability, and this is a helpful little phrase because you know what it reminds us of? That even in doing good works, we need discernment. We need discernment. Before we go around getting too excited, <laughs> going out and save the world after this sermon, right? Before we get too excited, we need to keep in mind our circumstances and our abilities. There are some times where we simply, we can't help. I I like to use the analogy, would it be a good work? I, right now, if I wanted to, the second church is over. I could go to Harvest Ministries or I could go find the the nearest nonprofit and I could just write a check for every cent in my bank account. And just give every last cent I have to charity. Would that be a good work? It's easy for some people to say, yes, of course. Giving all your money to charity, how sacrificial. How good. But what's the problem? What you realize is, while I've been loving that particular ministry with that sacrifice, I've also been hating a lot of my other neighbors in the same time. Because guess who now is in big trouble? My landlord. Who I made a, a promise, a commitment, a contractual relationship. I promised I will pay for the service you are providing me. And now I have to turn around tomorrow and say, I'm going to break that promise. I lied to you. I can't afford to pay my rent anymore. So in loving them, I hated my landlord. And who else did I hate? My wife. Sorry, hon. No more food. No more clothes. No more necessities. We've got no money. I gave it all to charity. Aren't I so great? Well, now we need charity. So you see, while the point of this sermon is ultimately not to tell us to not go about and do good works. Remember, Paul began by saying God will not be deceived. We, we, most of the time, we, we are far too quick to make excuses than we are to give so liberally. So I'm not trying to diminish that. I hope that this sermon encourages us to, to sow according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. But we do need to remember that sometimes people have expectations for how Christians ought to live and what it would look like for Christians to live. And we can say, no, that kind of service is not in my ability. I... Yeah, if I could just give everyone in the world a million dollars, I would, but I can't. There are some things that we don't have the ability or the circumstances to do, but God regularly puts us into places where we are able to help, and we need to take advantage of those. We need to be quick to sow good works. But notice, who particularly are we supposed to, within our ability, within our means, serve and help and love Well, Paul says one group in large and then one group in particular. As we have opportunity or as we have ability, let us do good to everyone. This is consistent with Jesus' teaching on who your neighbor is. Remember, Jesus upheld the law that you need to love your neighbor. And the Pharisees asked him, who is my neighbor? And what was essentially Jesus' answer? Everyone you see. (laughs) Jesus taught we need to be good to everyone. And so Paul reiterates the commandment of Christ here that our obligation 
to treat people well goes beyond any national border. It goes beyond any economic border. Everyone we come in contact with is someone we need to be ready to serve and help. And by the way, this would have been especially important because remember, one of the greatest problems of the first century Jewish church, well not Jewish church, the first century Christian church was Jewish favoritism. By the way, that's the background to this entire book. The entire book is, remember, remember how it began? Peter showed up and was all friends and buddy-buddy with the Gentiles, but then the Jews showed up. They're the special people of God, right? By the way, our very last sermon on this, we're going to teach that that's not true at all. But the, the, the Jews, the special people of God showed up. And so what did Peter do? Bye-bye, Gentiles. And Jesus is Remember, the whole, the whole parable of the Good Samaritan was ultimately a rebuke at the Jewish people who were really not concerned with anyone who wasn't Jewish. So Paul is especially attacking the Judaizers here who have this obsession with turning everyone into Jews before they can become Christians. No, no, no. We are all, everyone you see is, is an equal. They are either equal with you because they have been redeemed and bought by the blood of Christ or they are equal with you because they are sinners made in the image of God. But no matter who we see, we're equals in some way, shape, or form. We have no reason to show favoritism or partiality to anyone. So no matter your skin color, no matter your economic background, no matter what country you come from, no matter what language you speak, they are made in the image of God and they are worthy of our love. They are worthy of our kindness. Worthy not because of what they do, but worthy because of the image of God that they bear. So Paul reminds us that our kindness, our love, it needs to extend to any person that God puts into our way. However, that doesn't mean this isn't qualified. He does qualify it. There is a particular people that does have a bit of a preference. But who is it? Is it an ethnic group? Is it a political group? Is it an economic group? No. Let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of what? The household of faith. We are to do good to everyone, but make no mistake about it, Christians are your top priority. And I would argue the context of this really is what he's saying is that your local church is your top priority. We should be interested in helping everyone, but we have a spiritual family. We have a spiritual household. We have brothers and sisters that need to be our top concern. We do good to everyone, but especially to Christians. Especially to those who are the household of faith. And this is really important because in most of our lives, I would argue, it's really easy to reverse this. For good intentions. Because sometimes the mentality is, the Christians are already saved. Right? So, let them rot and go destitute, because I mean, they're going to heaven. So what we should be doing is, we should be pouring all of our resources and all of our time and all of our energy into the lost, because they're the ones that no matter how bad their life gets, now how good it is, they're not going to heaven. So, so forget the Christians, let's show a good example, let's love the lost as much as we can, let's pour out all our energy and resource in them in the hopes that they might come to faith. And so you'll find it's very easy in churches to make the lost our top concern. Why do you do the music that you do? All the Christians in your church hate it. They don't matter. We're trying to reach the lost here. 
When's the last time part of your budget has gone to help members within the church? All of your benevolence is always going to people outside of the church, to the homeless and to the poor, and you're never helping people within your church. Well, they know the Lord. We're trying to reach the lost here. You see how easy it is to wrap piety around favoring lost people? When the Bible says it's actually the exact opposite. Yes, lost people matter. And we do want to serve them and we want to love them and we want to help them. And the Bible says that when Christians are the salt of the earth, the light of the world, that will bring lost people to give glory to God. So we do help and serve lost people. And we also do so in the hopes that they will see the goodness of God and they will come to church and be saved. So yes, we do want to give special care and attention to lost people in the hopes that they might be saved. But at the end of the day, they are not our top priority. They're a huge priority. They matter. But we need to show good not just to them, but especially to those of the household of faith. We have a special bond in the church, the blood of Christ, that is supposed to be a tighter bond than any physical blood relationship you have, any economic, racial, whatever it is, any other relationship you have in earth. They're all good. They're glorious. God created them. But there is one more sacred, tighter bond than all of those, and it's the blood of Christ which unites us together. And by the way, I would argue that this actually does, in fact, seek to advance our cause for the lost. Because ultimately, the way we treat each other, 1 John says, proves that we love God. What we want from the lost is we want them to see a radically new community. Those people love each other. Those people take care of each other. How do I get a part of that? You see, having this special privilege towards Christians can actually serve to advance the lost. Because they want that community. How do, how do I find a love like that? How do I find sacrifice like that? How do I find people that, uh, by otherwise, I would have almost nothing in common with them? We have different economic backgrounds, different financial backgrounds. I hate their favorite sports teams. They hate my favorite sports teams. I would have nothing in common with them, yet they love each other so radically. You see, we can seek to win the lost by having that kind of an inward focus. What is the application of the reaping and sowing principle? We do good to everyone, but especially to those who are united to Christ by faith along with you. We have a spiritual family that we need to make sure that we are taking care of as our top priority. So in conclusion, you see kind of to continue the metaphor, a seed of truth, if you will, in the karma principle. There is some truth to this idea that what you put out, you will get. There is some truth to this idea that what you plant on the ground will come back to you. But what I hope we see is that karma, especially the Americanized version, is a cheap knockoff of the sowing and reaping principle. Why? Well, see, karma has this impossible assumption. It assumes the impossible, which is that an impersonal universe can be just. Right? This idea of the universe will reward you, what goes around comes around. 
that's essentially personifying the material world as if it has a mind and it can say, okay, this person deserves that and this person deserves that. But the material world can't offer you that. The universe can't do that. Those are decisions that had to be made by a person. The mindless, pantheistic, everything is God, we're all God, the stars are God, I'm God, you're God, the universe is God, and the universe will reward us. No, the universe can't think. The universe can't be just. The universe can't be fair. The universe just is. But see, in the Christian faith, we have a just, personal God who can make decisions who can deal out retribution, who can deal out reward, who can be merciful and forgiving, who can be just and who can be fair. The universe can't do that. But God can do that. You see, karma has an arbitrary standard of justice. In karma, you're supposed to do good so that good might come back to you. Well, what is good? How do I know what to do? What are the good works that will help me? Where do you get that from the universe? crack open an acorn and you find a Ten Commandments somewhere? You see, karma just assumes that good is something we all know. And certainly in society, it doesn't look that way. We have a big political election coming up in a couple months because we have a whole country that can't agree on what is good and what is evil. Where does good come from? And karma is just assumed. You just know it and you do it. But in Christianity, we have this consistent understanding that a personal and just God can reveal his will to people. We have a standard to live by. You don't get that in karma. Just do good. What is that? I don't know. Just do it. The universe will show it to you. How? I don't know. It's absurd. And as a matter of fact, I would argue that karma actually, get this, actually destroys your reason to be good to people. Why? If karma is true and reincarnation is true, when I see somebody who's suffering, somebody who's miserable, what am I supposed to think? They earned this. That, that must have been Hitler in a past life. So why on earth the universe has taken this horrible, rotten person and has doled out arbitrarily this just retribution so if I alleviate that justice, I've actually now done something bad. That would be like going to prison and unlocking all the doors. Let go. Go ahead, guys. I'm just trying to be a good neighbor. No, you're not supposed to let them out of prison. That's a just sentence that's been awarded to them. So if karma is just doling out these just sentences and all of my troubles are something I earned from a past life, then why would we seek to alleviate that? This is, by the way, why I think India is one of the most horrible places to live in the entire planet. Because you have no religious motivation to be kind to people. Everyone you see who's got a horrible lot in life, all you see is a wicked, vile sinner in some past life. Good riddance. That should be your response. And then it does nothing but swell up pride in you. My life's pretty good. I must have been a good guy. I must be good. All those orphans over there must have been terrible people. Man, I'm glad I'm not so bad. You see, karma is not only insane, it's wicked. It's wicked. It creates selfishness, pride, arrogance, self-centered living. The sowing and reaping principle is entirely different. The sowing and reaping principle says, you know what? They do deserve that. 
but so do I. But God has been merciful to me. The Spirit has changed me. The Gospel has saved me. Jesus has died for me. I have no reason to withhold the mercy that God gave me. Did I deserve a horrible life? Yes, but God was good to me. So do they deserve a horrible life? Yes, but I'm going to be good to them. We have a motivation. We have a moral law revealed. We have a personal God we can trust to do right at the end of time. You see, the sowing and reaping principle is so much better than karma. It's so much better than the universe will reward you. What goes around comes around. No, 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 no. The just God of all the earth will do right. And that is a far different cry from what goes around comes around. We have a just God who everyone will stand up before. And we can take the hope and confidence of knowing that no matter what happens on Judgment Day, the just, personal, good God of all the universe will do right. His sentencing will be just. His rewards will be just. And so in this time, in our life here, this sowing and reaping principle, it does not teach us that what goes around comes around. It does not teach us to do good so that your life here will get better. It rather, it teaches us this. Pursue good works because God is worth it and the harvest is worth it. That's the message. Pursue good works because God is worth it and because the harvest will be worth it. May we not grow weary of doing good works. Let us not grow weary of doing good, of doing good. For in this season we will reap if we do not.